Our text for this morning is John 14, verses 25 through 31. And this is the word of Almighty God, Jesus speaking, saying, These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Pray with me, friends. Lord God, as we stand here in your presence with your people, we seek your glory. We seek that you would be praised and honored. We seek to know you. And I pray, Lord, that as we are gathered under your word, would you do something miraculous? Fill your people with your spirit and help us surrender to your will. Open blinded eyes, enliven dead hearts, comfort troubled souls. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. It's hard to imagine what the disciples must have felt on the night that Jesus was betrayed. Things that week had gone so well. I mean, Jesus had been honored at the home of Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. The disciples, I mean, it's a little less than a week after that, they can probably still smell the remnants of that perfume that Mary used to anoint him. Jesus had been honored by the crowds that saw him ride into Jerusalem. The Savior had taught boldly in Jerusalem. And even the Greeks longed to see him. And then just this evening, the disciples gathered in the upper room. In a, in a stunning display of love and humility, Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And they celebrated the Passover meal. And, and Jesus told them that there's now going to be a new ceremony where the bread and the cup are going to be used to honor him. And then things got weird. Jesus started predicting that somebody would betray him. And Judas left the room. And Jesus began to talk about his death. And the Savior said he was going to leave and the disciples couldn't go wherever he was going. And, and Jesus was upset. And the disciples were upset. And then chapter 14 opens for us. And Jesus calls on the disciples not to let their hearts be troubled. And verse by verse, thought by thought, Jesus began to offer words of teaching and words of comfort to the followers. The Savior had pointed to the promise of heaven to his soon-to-be-accomplished work on the cross, 
to the coming of the Spirit, and to the glory of the Holy Trinity. What do you think you'd have felt if you'd been in that room? Would you have been afraid? Probably. Would you have been confused? Likely. Would you have been comforted and amazed by Jesus? Absolutely. As we pick up the words of Jesus in today's passage, we're going to continue to read words of comfort from the Savior to his disciples. And today, those words of comfort will be sources of great joy. So let's find five points today as we rejoice in Christ's comforts. Point number one for today, for you note takers. Rejoice in the gift of Scripture. Rejoice in the gift of Scripture. Verses 25 to 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The first of our series of comforts from the Savior for this morning involves the second thing Jesus says the Holy Spirit will do. Earlier, Jesus had promised that when he went away, he would ask his Father to send the disciples another helper. A helper like Jesus, but not Jesus. Now Jesus tells us that the Spirit who comes will enable the disciples to faithfully remember all of his teachings. Now, just stop there for a second. All of his teaching? As you guys know, we've been walking through John's gospel for a while. Would you guys agree that Jesus has had a lot to say and to teach? Yeah. Yeah. John arranges his telling of the life of Jesus to highlight seven miraculous signs. We've talked about those. Seven I am signs sayings of Christ. But you may not know that John also gave us seven sermons, seven teachings of Jesus. Those teachings would be things like the new birth discourse in chapter 3, the water of life, chapter 4, the divine son, chapter 5, the bread of life, chapter 6, the life-giving spirit, chapter 7, the light of the world, chapter 9, the Good Shepherd Discourse in chapter 10. And even here in the upper room, Jesus is teaching his disciples because he wants to comfort them. He wants to prepare them for his departure. And here, for a second time, Jesus points to the promise of the Holy Spirit. Because not only is the Spirit going to be a helper to the disciples, he's going to be a teacher. Jesus taught throughout his ministry... Jesus taught in the upper room this evening. And now that Jesus is about to depart from the disciples, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is going to take up the teacher role. He will enlighten the disciples. He will help them clearly recall everything Christ taught. Well... 
Real quick, let me give you some important theology words. Because I assume you guys like theology words. There is one and only one God. Amen? Amen. This God is revealed to us in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Each of these persons is co-eternal and co-equal. What that means is the Father did not create the Son or the Spirit. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Father is, because he's Father, unbegotten. The Son, for all eternity, is begotten of the Father. The Spirit, for all eternity, proceeds from the Father and from the Son. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. Yet all of these persons are of the same essence. Thus there is one God in three persons. And what do we call God in three persons? Blessed Trinity. You guys could have sung it if you wanted to, right? Now the concept of the Holy Trinity is a thing worthy of a lifetime of study. Wouldn't you agree? We got to move forward tonight though. And I want this morning... And talk about what Christ says the Spirit will do. I've got the night in the upper room in my head as I say this. So, Once Christ leaves the disciples, once Jesus is no longer physically present to teach them, he's going to ask the Father to send to his disciples the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. And once the Spirit comes, all believers for all time, will have the Lord God present with and within them. That's what Jesus taught us earlier. But now we see that the Spirit, when he comes, will particularly work with the disciples. And what Jesus is saying here, it's very focused on the apostles. This is not just a general, everybody gets this one, although it will help everybody. The Spirit's going to teach us. The Spirit's going to help us. But right here, right now, Jesus is pointing to the fact that once Jesus ascends to the throne of heaven, the Holy Spirit is going to come and will guide the disciples that they might recall and understand the words and the works of Christ. Believers, saints, we know what the result of this work of the Spirit is. When the disciples of Christ recalled and understood the words and works of Jesus, they wrote those words and works down. They wrote them down under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They wrote down for us the New Testament. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says to us, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. God says, God says that the Bible is God-breathed. Now we know men wrote these words down 
But the writing is so well guarded and guided by the Holy Spirit that every bit of it can, said, can be said to be the very breath of God himself. 2 Peter 1, 19-21 reads, And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, in Christ, we're so fully sure of the scriptures that we should pay the Bible very close, very careful attention. No man produced Bible scripture, if you will, from his own wisdom. No. Men were carried along by the Spirit of God. For the second time in the upper room, Jesus teaches his disciples about the Holy Spirit of God. And this time we see that the Spirit would jog the memories of these men and clarify their understanding so that they would write down for us divinely inspired scriptures. The comfort is that we don't have to try to remember with fuzzy brains what Jesus said. Neither do we rely on ourselves to understand everything Jesus taught. God loves his church so much that he sent his spirit. And one of the tasks of the spirit is to see to it that the disciples recorded for us perfect, inspired word of God. I'll add for you and me, The Spirit of God is our teacher. He is our reminder too. He teaches us how to understand the Bible. He teaches us how to read the Word of God, to understand the commands of God. And he reminds us of what we know. It's the Spirit of God who brings to mind the commands of God when you're in a place, in a situation where you need to remember those commands. And that's why I say here, rejoice in the gift of Scripture. Thank God for his word. Love it. Learn it. Memorize it. Study it. Submit to it. The word of God is breathed out by God, overseen and inspired by the Spirit. Totally true. Totally trustworthy. Totally sufficient for everything it intends to teach you. Let's go on and find another comfort. Number two, rejoice in lasting peace with God. Rejoice in lasting peace with God. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. As Jesus prepares to leave the disciples, he leaves them with peace. The Greek word is erene. It's where the name Irene comes from, by the way, if you didn't know that. Shalom in Hebrew. The peace 
that Jesus leaves them is being contrasted with a troubled, stirred up, breaking and cowardly heart. Jesus is leaving the disciples with a peace that can only come from him and a peace that will help them to conquer the fears that they face. Jesus says he gives his disciples a peace that's different than the peace that the world gives. How? How is Jesus' peace different than that of the world? Well, the peace that Jesus gives comes from a different source. It comes from God. The peace that Jesus gives has a different focus. Eternity. And most significantly, the peace that Jesus gives has a different duration because the world may offer you peace, but does the world's peace last? No. The world's peace comes and goes with the ups and downs of life. The peace of Jesus is everlasting. It stays with the true believer forever. I want you to think of the peace of Jesus in three ways. In 1 Peter 5, 7, the word just talks about casting your cares, your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So first, think of the peace of Christ as coming to you from God as comfort coming to you from God. What a great blessing. What a sweet blessing to think that the God who made you, the God over all the universe, would treat you with comfort and kindness and favor and gentleness. That God would quiet your troubled soul with his tender care is stunning. And he invites you to cast your cares on him. That's a blessing. But go further and consider the peace of God from a gospel perspective. The word of God is clear to us that every last one of us begins in a state of guilt before God. We're naturally sinners. That's our natural makeup. We're guilty of sin. We're guilty of rebellion against God. We've earned anger from God. We've earned judgment from God. How amazing then is it for you to think that this very God, the God we've offended with our actions and with our attitudes and with our wicked hearts, that that God would move to bring us to a place where we could be said to be finally forever at peace with him. How does Paul always open his letters? Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Only because God has chosen to give us grace, favor that we could never earn because of Jesus. Only because of God's grace can we go from being the enemies of God to being the beloved children of God. That is, That's a peace you want. But from a third angle, I like this one. Think of the peace that Christ gives from a bigger picture of biblical history. Remember, mankind fell in Adam in the garden. 
And God promised that somebody would come into the world, born of woman, to crush the devil and set things right. And that promise was carried through the ages, revealed to a greater and greater degree until the people of God began to understand that a promised one, a promised king, an anointed one, the Messiah, would come. But do you remember what would mark the reign of the Messiah? Do you remember what the Messiah would bring? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. One of the things that the Messiah brings to his people is peace that lasts forever. Peace with no end. Jesus leaving his disciples a peace unlike any peace the world can give is showing us once again that he is the fulfillment of the promises of God. So rejoice in lasting peace with God. All who are in Jesus have peace to comfort our souls. Peace that has set us right with God. Peace that'll last forever. Third point. Rejoice in Christ's exaltation. Rejoice in Christ's exaltation. 28. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I'll come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So as Jesus continues to comfort the disciples, there is a touch of rebuke in this next thought from Jesus. The disciples have heard Jesus say he's going away. They've heard him say that he's going to come again to them. We know that they don't grasp what he's saying. Right? They, they can't understand the plan of the cross. They can't understand the burial and the resurrection before it happens. Even if Jesus has already spelled it out for them, they're still going to miss it. But the Savior says to his disciples, If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. The rebuke, and it's not a big one, but it's there, is that their desire for him to stay and not leave them is actually an unloving thing. If they love Jesus, they should be excited about his departure. Now, with no context, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, does it you? (laughs) But the Lord doesn't leave us hanging. The disciples should have rejoiced at Jesus' departure because the departure of the Savior means that he is returning to his heavenly Father. It's good, sweet, and right for Jesus to be reunited in heaven with the Father. Loving somebody includes that you want what is best 
for them. Loving Jesus, if you were in the upper room, would be you rejoicing that Jesus would soon be back on the throne of the universe, even if that means he's not physically sharing a meal with you anytime soon. Let's take the concept a bit further, shall we? How does Jesus get to the Father? The only way for the Son of God to return to his throne is by accomplishing his mission. The only way for Jesus to get where he's going is for Jesus to totally finish the work that he came to do. The disciples should be rejoicing that Jesus is leaving them because that departure means that Jesus will have gone to the cross, risen from the grave, and then ascended to glory. Now, the final phrase in this verse is one of those phrases that if you don't have context, it leads not only to confusion, but to heresy. And I want you to know this, guys. I don't use the word heresy lightly. There's several things Ben's wrong about, but I don't call him a heretic. (laughs) Anthony may be wrong about this cowboy boots issue from Sunday school, but that's not heresy. Heresy is when you believe something so wrong that you're likely to miss or pervert the gospel. Or that you will do great damage to the life of the church. This verse without context risks heresy. Jesus says, for the Father is greater than I. You guys feel weird about that? Immediately, let's be sure that we know what is not happening here. Jesus is not denying being God. Do you guys think that Jesus is suggesting that in his very being, in his ontology, in his essence, that he's lesser than or lower than the Father? No, no. In this very chapter... Jesus has already said to Philip, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. All of the attributes that make the Father God are the very attributes that belong to Jesus and make him God too. In John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus could never have said, he and the Father are one if there's something about Jesus that makes Jesus lesser than or of a differing essence than the Father. In fact, what it means that Jesus is Son of God is that he is of the very essence of the Father. So how can Jesus say the Father is greater? Well, think of this in the light of the context. Jesus, when he says this to the disciples, is presently incarnate, in flesh, living on earth. He's headed to the cross. For the time being, Jesus has willingly lowered himself to be able to become a man that he might save the souls of the people of God. 
If you want to turn there, look at Philippians 2 for just a moment. This is scripture you might want to see with your eyes. Philippians 2. Since nobody uses paper, I never know when you're there. Used to, you'd hear flip, 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 and done. Now it's button, 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 and you're just looking at me like, when are you going to go on? Have you found Philippians 2? Almost, I heard. Look down at verse 5, Philippians 2. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, that's a big deal, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Pause. In the words of Paul here in Philippians chapter 2, we see that Jesus, what is Jesus in his truest form according to verses 5 and 6? In very form, Jesus is God. That is why Jesus does not have to grasp for or seek to seize deity. There's nothing for Jesus to reach out to get that's higher than Jesus. He is God the Son. He is God. But in order to accomplish his mission, the Son set aside not his deity, but his rights as God. Jesus never stopped being God. But Jesus did take upon himself the true form of humanity. Jesus is truly man. And as a man, Jesus willingly submitted himself to his father's will. Jesus not only took on humanity, but he also suffered and he died the horrific death of crucifixion that he might pay the price for the sins of everyone God would forgive. Now, so far, this trip to the cross doesn't sound like something that you want to rejoice over for Jesus' sake, does it? Does this sound good for Jesus so far? You're not sure? Would you like it? Lay aside all your rights, take on the form of a servant and be crucified? How many of you are for that? This is not a trick question. It's good for us. It's the only way we could ever be forgiven. Why would it be good for Jesus? Watch the result for the son in verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. And bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. In heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, after Jesus voluntarily steps out of heaven to become a man. Laying aside his rights. 
after Jesus gives up his life as an atoning sacrifice for sins, after he rescues God's elect, after he rises from the grave, after he ascends back to heaven, Jesus has the name above every name. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In John 17, 5, Jesus prayed it like this. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. When Jesus returns to his Father, Jesus will once again be glorified with the glory that he and the Father have shared for all of eternity. By the way, if Jesus can share the glory of the Father that he and the Father had before everything existed, Jesus must be uncreated. He's not the first of God's creation. He's not the highest of God's creation. He and the Father are one. He is God Jesus would have the glory that he and his father shared for eternity past before the cross. Now here in the upper room, Jesus is still in the state of having set aside that glory that he might accomplish the mission. But when Jesus returns to the father, he will have the glory that is due his position as, as the creed says, very God of very God. So why do we rejoice in Christ's exaltation? It's good for Jesus that Jesus returned to his glorious throne to receive the eternal glory due his name. Now Jesus lives. Now Jesus is truly God and truly man. He is enthroned above the heavens. He is alive in heaven, worshiped by men, worshiped by angels right now awaiting the day of his return. And the exaltation of Jesus is good for us because it means that his cross work is complete, never ever to be repeated, never to be represented. It means that Jesus in a moment on a cross did the work that was needed to save our very souls. And it means that because Jesus is alive after the grave, we who trust in Jesus live with Jesus forever in glory. That's why it's good. That's why you rejoice in the exaltation of Jesus. So point number four. Get ready for this one. It's complicated. Believe in Jesus. Look at verse 29. You tell me if if it's in there. And now I've told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Why is Jesus filling the disciples in on the plan? Well, simply put, Jesus wants them to believe. He knows that if his disciples understand what Jesus knew, if they understand that Jesus knew exactly what was about to take place, after it happens, they will believe. And honestly, I couldn't help putting a little call to believe in Jesus as a sermon pointed. It feels like it's been a little while since I made that one of them, right? But it's okay. You guys know it's all about believing in Jesus, right? 
But this is a great opportunity to remember why did God inspire the gospel according to John? John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God inspired John by the leading of the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised earlier to write down exactly what we have here in this gospel. John says, I could have told you a lot of other stories, true stories about Jesus, but God chose these stories for you to hear that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's promised one. God chose these to help us believe that Jesus is the Son of God, God in the flesh. God chose these to help us believe in Jesus so we might be saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. So let me remind you of a simple truth. None of us can make it to God on our own. None of us is good enough. We all need to be forgiven by God because we've all sinned against God. We all need to be cleaned up by God, made holy by God, so that we can enter the presence of God. We need God's mercy so we can have life and not death. Do you want God to forgive you? Do you want God to cleanse you? Do you want to live forever with God? You can only do so if you will come to Jesus in faith. Believe in Jesus. Believe that he lived a perfect life as God in the flesh. Believe that Jesus died to be the only sacrifice for your sins. Believe that Jesus rose from the grave and proved that his work is complete and that his very life can be yours. Believe in such a way that you rest your entire hope for your entire eternity on Jesus and Jesus alone. Your being right with God has nothing to, you with you, to do with you doing good things. It's got everything to do with you just entrusting yourself to Jesus. Believe in such a way that you stop trying to be the master of your life and surrender your soul to Jesus. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Why? Because God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you, that in him you might become the righteousness of God. All right, last point. Y'all still awaken with me, by the way? All right. Point five, rejoice in Christ's completed mission. 30 and 31, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world will know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus offers one more encouragement for his disciples to comfort their hearts, that we'll study it today. I mean, it's getting late. There's not a lot of time left for conversation. Soon, quite soon, Judas is going to lead the soldiers to a place where they can find and arrest Jesus. 
Jesus tells the disciples, the ruler of this world's coming. Remember, by the way, earlier tonight, Judas, acting the greatest hypocrite of all time, took the bread that Jesus offered to him. And when he did that, Satan entered him. And Judas pretended to be a friend of Jesus. He pretended to receive a gesture of love and peace. And Judas still intended he would betray Jesus to Jesus' death. So as, Jesus, as, as Judas is coming to betray Jesus, the devil is on the move. Here Jesus calls the devil the ruler of this world. Why? Because the evil, sinful world system loves the devil and hates God. But make no mistake about it, the devil's not the true ruler of anything. The devil is completely, utterly bound by the limitations that the Lord places upon him. The devil has no claim on Jesus. Not at all. Now, when Jesus says the devil has no claim on him, Jesus is making a profound statement, so don't miss it. On whom does the devil have a claim? The devil has a claim on sinners, right? The devil is an accuser. He calls on God to destroy those who are guilty of sin. But Jesus has never failed. Jesus is no sinner. The devil has no claim on Jesus. So Jesus going to the cross and dying, it's not in any way about any failing in Jesus. Instead, Jesus going to the cross is the perfect expression of Jesus' love for the Father and the united Holy Trinity's love for God's holy people. Now, before there was time, there was the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Before God made anything, God existed this way. And before God created, there was an agreement made among the persons of the Trinity. Theologians call it the Pactum Salutis. The covenant of redemption. What's the agreement? The agreement is that God the Father would elect a people for salvation and send God the Son to be their Savior, and the Father would reward the Son for fulfilling that role by glorifying the Son and giving the Son his people as a gift. God the Son would willingly be sent by his Father willingly submit to his father's commands while on earth and accomplish the redemption of God's elect through his life, death, and resurrection. The son would receive as a reward his people. God the Holy Spirit would be present with and aid the son in his life. The Spirit will apply the redeeming work of the son to all of the elect, sealing them and keeping them for God for eternity. That's why in John 4, 34, Jesus said to people, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus came to do his father's will because he was sent on an eternal mission of grace. 
In John 6, 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus came to save all the Father has given him. That points to the fact that the Father promised, to, promised the Son a gift of his people. God the Father gave Jesus a particular people as a gift. Then they're the people Jesus came to save. And then the chapter closes here. Jesus says to the disciples, rise, let us go. Get up, let's get ready to go. It may take them 20 minutes to leave the room from this point forward, by the way. And if you think that's weird, you've never been to anybody's house visiting a day in your life. (laughs) How many of you have ever said, all right, let's go. And it's taken you 30 minutes to leave. Anybody got kids? There you go. But Jesus says, let's get up. We got to go. There's still work to be done. And that work's going to be accomplished. Rejoice in the completed mission of Christ, though, friends. Jesus, his completed mission, it proves that he loves the Father. And praise God, Jesus' completed work is what saves the souls of all who believe. This is worthy of joy. So, do you believe in Jesus? May what we've seen today call you to rejoice. Rejoice in the gift of Holy Scripture. Rejoice in lasting peace with God. Rejoice in Christ's exaltation. Rejoice in Christ's completed mission. And if you're not sure where you stand before God, I've got one singular call for you. Believe in Jesus. Believe and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, I pray that today you will help your people to better hear and understand who Jesus is. Help us rejoice in all that Christ has done. Help us find our life and our hope forever in the Savior. Thank you, God, for being who you are. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for the promise of eternal life. Thank you for his resurrection and ascension. Thank you for our hope of life because Jesus is alive today. Now, may we rejoice in all that Christ has accomplished. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.